Opera Plot Happy Hour, a podcast in which I, Tina, a real live opera singer, tells me, Amanda, a perfect one-to-one ratio of class and crass about the plot of an opera, and we will probably ruin it for everyone. This week, we were supposed to talk about a Wagner opera, but Wagner is drama enough for this episode himself. So we're going to talk exclusively about Wagner, his life, his work, and his legacy, and come back to an opera next week. But that doesn't mean that Amanda is off the hook for her one-minute Wagner bio. Uh, damn it. <laughs> you got one minute on the clock. Okay. Ready, set, good fucking luck. Wilhelm <laughs> Richard, sorry, god damn it, can we start over? <laughs> I'll start restart over. the clock. <laughs> I just, the pronunciation is going to bug me if I do it wrong. Ready? Yes. Set, Go. Wilhelm Richard Wagner, May 22nd, 1813 to February 13th, 1883, was a German composer, theater director, polemicist, and conductor who is chiefly known for his operas. Wagner was actively nationalist in his young to middle adulthood and played a minor role in the Dresden Uprising, a left-wing anti-monarchy rebellion. In his essay, The Artwork of the Future, he described a vision of opera as Gesamtkunstwerk, a total work of art in which the various arts such as music, song, dance, poetry, visual arts, and stagecraft were unified. Wagner had a tumultuous marriage to his wife Minna and was routinely separated from her. During one such period, he knocked up the wife of the conducting the conductor directing his opera, Cosima, also the daughter of Franz Liszt. When Minna later died of a heart attack, Wagner did not attend the funeral. He and Cosima were later married. Until his final years, Wagner's life was characterized by political exile, turbulent lover for his poverty, and repeated flight from his creditors. His controversial writings on his music, drama, and politics have attracted extensive comment, notably since the late 20th century, where they expressed anti-Semitic sentiments. His compositions, particularly those of his later period, are notable for their complex textures, rich harmonies, and... I was so close. I was so close. You were so you were close. You were close. close. You know, for the sake of this episode, do you want to just finish it? Because we are going to talk all about Wagner. Yes. Okay. Uh, His compositions, particularly those of his later period, are notable for their complex textures, rich harmonies, and orchestration, and the elaborate use of light motifs. Adolf Hitler was infamously an admirer of Wagner's music and saw in his operas an embodiment of his own vision of the German nation. Because of the associations of Wagner with anti-Semitism and Nazism, the performance of his music in the state of Israel has been a source of controversy mm-hmm. and scene. Mm-hmm. And it is a lot of that controversy that we're probably going to touch Woo-hoo! on today. Yeah, it's there's plenty to be had, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So th- what I want to do is I want to give you all of the good things that Wagner did first Mm -hmm. because there is just a lot of stuff that we can't ignore that he brought to this art form that we inexplicably love yeah and then we'll touch on the bad we'll we'll just touch we'll just touch we'll just I mean we're gonna gonna we're gonna stick her it's like a bowl full of jelly we're just gonna stick our hands in and just go wish them around in there and it's gonna get all over everything you're not making this any better I wasn't really trying to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I'm just going to give you a list of the great things that Wagner has done. 
So especially in his later music, Wagner really pushed the bounds of tonality and introduced new ideas to harmony, melodic process, light motif, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And he led the way, he paved the way for atonality to happen. So I'm assuming that's like a point in Wagner camp on your, in your perspective. Yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like you could say that about a lot of composers, but maybe more so Wagner, but yes. He... He really made a point of pushing German music forward. And there was a there was a major conflict of romantic composers, old romantic like Schumann and Mendelssohn, and new romantic like Wagner. And Wagner is telling the other composers, like, you guys aren't doing enough to bring German music forward. You're not saying anything new. Sure. And the other people are telling Wagner, like, no, this is like new for the sake of being new. And so they they didn't quite get along, but <laughs> it's the clash of the romantic. And those are not just uh, punk bands. Yep. Um, so Wagner inspired so many composers, including Bruckner, Hugo Wolf, Caesar Franck, Duparc, Massenet, Richard Strauss, who was often called Richard II. And the list goes on. And my favorite non-opera composer, Gustav Mahler, was so devoted to Wagner. And note that Mahler was Jewish, mm-hmm. well, but he, then he converted later to, converted to Christianity. Right. Yeah, yeah. But Mahler was a renowned Wagner conductor. Yeah. And speaking of, Wagner revolutionized the field of conducting. He wrote an essay in 1869 called About Conducting, claiming that conducting could be a means by which a music work is reinterpreted, not just a mechanism for achieving orchestral union. So instead of just beating the beat and keeping everybody on the same page, literally, he reinterprets the works through his conducting. And he led by example in his own conducting. Yep. I mean, that's all. That's good. Those are good things. Yes. And without Wagner, we wouldn't have Star Wars. <laughs> that's oh yeah no I mean like we we'll get into this later but the um the the degree to which Wagner's style and experimental style and yeah like the way the way he wrote music has had such a profound impact on the way music is written now can you say that about him, but not about the composers who went before him? I would argue you cannot. It's possible that because of the dramatic shift that his work took music in the direction of, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was considerably different than the things coming before it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Most of the composers about whom we have talked have changed the art form in some way. Mm -hmm. They have done something distinctive. They have made music different. And that's why they have endured, probably. It's it's at least a part of why they've endured. I think that Wagner probably did a more, it was a more dramatic shift. It's been compared to, uh, has it been compared to, or did I just make this connection? I don't know. I can't take credit. Probably at least four other people in the universe have had this thought. Um, But For example, Freud, he was pioneering a very large shift in thinking about emotions and physical body and how they were intertwined with his foray into what is now thought of as psychology and psychiatry. And so therefore, Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's considered the father of modern psychology, psychiatry. However, 
people came before him. People made change before him. Actually, Wagner was one of those people. I know. Wagner's philosophies on, you know, the interpretation of dreams and the Oedipus complex predated yep. Freud. I know. Not even Freud's philosophies, predated Freud, period. Freud, period, like before he was born. Yep, yeah. I know. Um, which I thought was interesting um, for the reason that they both were so influential. <laughs> and and then after figuring out that it was like, he he... Freud very likely and or definitely drew from Wagner's philosophies and his philosophical writings in formulating his own philosophies. They influenced different areas of human and and societal thought, which is probably why they get their own distinctive uh, notoriety. But yeah. yeah. So anyways, long story short, yes, he changed music, period, full stop. All of the music we have today, particularly film scores and like musical theater, would simply not, I mean, unless, you know, there's always, uh, uh, God, what's the phrase? There's no original ideas. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing. Yeah. Thank you. There's nothing new under the sun. Like if you're thinking a thing that you think, oh my God, this is the most original idea anybody's ever had. Maybe, or maybe because of the sheer number of people in the world and the reasonable probability that five or so of them have a similar set of experiences to you maybe someone else has also thought of this maybe Mm -hmm. they will think of it next week maybe they thought of it last week it doesn't you know like uniqueness is kind of (laughs) yeah it's very romanticized um circumstance can play a large role in who tells your story to quote again (laughs) Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. I know I keep stealing your words right out of your mouth. Please don't sue us. <laughs> I do. I want to actually take that idea that you just laid down and run with it because, you know, we talked about leitmotif and how Wagner really brought it to the forefront. And mm-hmm. without it, we wouldn't have Star Wars, which I'll touch on. But he didn't invent leitmotif. I mean, leitmotif was happening 50, 100 years before Wagner was doing it. It happens in Der Freischutz um, quite often. But Wagner is the one who who really took it and integrated it into the plot and like ran with it. So leitmotif, for the listeners who don't know, because I hadn't heard that. Well, if I'd mm-hmm. heard it, I didn't remember what it meant. Um, but think of it as when you're watching a movie and... Oh, yeah. So Star Wars. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, Princess Leia's theme. Oh, it's God, probably easier to go with the Force theme. That's the one everybody knows. Yeah, the Force theme, right? Anytime anybody talks about using the Force, thinks about the Force, anything. That's when we hear musical that theme sound. comes yep. up. Yep, yep. Totally. And there's one for Princess Leia and there's one for dun 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 the imperial march yeah the imperial march is like used in variation for that light motif um we see this a lot in and i love to call this out but it's a great example stephen sondheim musicals very heavy use of light motif as well um it's it's so and it's such a powerful way of telling a story with music when you're when you're doing oh god what did wagner call it Gesamtkunstwerk. Gesamtkunstwerk. The total work of art. Exactly. When he's, this was a, you know, 
he felt it was a, a brand new idea. He considered himself to be prophetic, mm-hmm. which is telling. And I will talk I mean, about it more. He had an ego. Let's, yeah. Oh my was, God. Was Wagner a narcissist? Yes. Absolutely. Um, we'll talk about that more. But regardless, um, he considered himself prophetic. He, he wrote about Gesamtkunstwerk and he felt like it was this total new foray into how to tell a story with music. I feel like it's been done before this. Like, I feel like other composers at least attempted to do this. I think the use of light motif as heavily as Wagner used it made a distinct step forward mm-hmm. in regard to how well we can marry together, like telling a story and acting and the scenery and the music and it all comes together. They're not distinct things. Um, I think, but I just don't think it was new, new. You know, I don't think it was really new. I don't think there's anything new under the sun <laughs> to circle back around to that, you know? Let me circle back to Star Wars for just a hot yeah. second. Because yeah, when yeah, I yeah. say that we wouldn't have Star Wars without Wagner, I'm not just making a bold statement. It's actually a true statement. George Lucas had this idea of a space opera and he sat down John Williams, the composer, and literally played Wagner's Ring Cycle and said, can you do this? And John Williams is like, what, write an opera? And George Lucas is like, no, like this. And you can actually overlay <laughs> a lot of the plot of Star Wars onto the ring cycle. No way. <laughs> yes way. Oh yes way. God. And if you notice, like there, of course, are all those light motifs. But if you list, if you watch the original trilogy, there is never a point where the music stops. The film is through composed. That is a good call up. So I just want to call this out for listeners because I know we have a few. In fact, we have an unofficial, soon-to-be official fan club. Do you know this, Tina? What? Yeah. Um, Abe Popowitz is a member of the bartending community in Minneapolis. And he's actually the one who hooked us up with our guest for episode eight, Barbara of Seville. Uh, and we we're chatting and he loves the podcast. He listens to it regularly. He bothers me when we're late (laughs) putting up the episodes. Um, And he said that he would be the president of our fan club. We have a fan club. We have, hold on. We have a fan club with like actual roles that include president. (laughs) So, so he and I have been chatting about it. I I don't have the administrative capacity to be the president of my own fan club, nor does it really smack of any kind of modesty. humility. Oh <laughs> I'm sure Wagner um, would be the president of his own fan club. He probably was. I mean, yeah. Abe Popowitz is a big old fan of Star Wars, like frighteningly big fan of Star Wars. And he might like to know the ring cycle that Tina is referring to is, <laughs> oh God, it's terrifying. It is a series of three operas with a prologue opera. Mm-hmm. So you have, you and you perform them together. So you do a four night opera and all of these are what, like full length, like hour and a half-ish yeah, long Yeah, it's like operas. 16 hours worth of opera. Yeah, it's obscene. It is obscenely long. And it's opera, so it's also through composed. And what Tina was saying is that if you, and I challenge you, Abe, to do this if you have not yet, (laughs) but if you go back and watch, 
all three of those first three movies. And I don't know, the second three as well, maybe? Don't watch those. No, never watch them. Never watch them. But yeah, so the music never stops. Like, there's never a moment longer than the length of a fermata, a long rest in music, in which the music stops entirely. That is impressive. I had not realized that was such a strong influence. Mm-hmm. I always assumed it was Lord of the Rings because Ring Cycle. Well, and and all of it is based in Norse mythology. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so not everybody does the Ring Cycle all in four nights. No, no, but they that's break how it's it intended. Up, but that's how but, it's, I mean, God, yeah. how could you how could you fund that? My God, we talked about doing in one of our episodes, I can't remember which one, but we're like, ha ha ha. Oh yeah. It was Ernani. It was when we were talking about like how much context do we feel like we're obligated to give our audience before we show them an opera so that they can really fully enjoy it because they understand the context of it. And we were like, ha ha ha. Wouldn't it be funny if on a Thursday night, we gave them a background into the romanticist versus the classicist. And then on Friday night, we did a staging of the stage play of Ernani. And then on Saturday night, we did the opera version of Ernani. And like, that is a production nightmare. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrifying. I mean, if you had a, if you had a great budget, but wowie. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Wagner did have an excellent budget at the point where he wanted to open this and he legitimately created an opera house yeah yeah this funding that he had from the current king of would it be prussia at that point or was it still was it bavaria Hmm. let me double check while you go on to your next thing but i leading up to that there are a few wagner ideals that we should talk about that really come to fruition in this this ring cycle and also lead to the building of this opera house and when you listen to it it sounds like i mean wagner sounds like a socialist (laughs) yeah well i mean he kind of a little bit was for a minute there yeah so he thought that industry was destroying the world. He hated capitalism and believed that the state often pursued its own interests to the detriment of the people. He believed it was unnatural to pursue power at the expense of love. He disliked the rich and sought to make music that which would speak to the common man and be the voice of the common man, which, Mm. spoiler alert, he failed at that because rich people love that shit. Um, (laughs) And he also decried that he was living in an age where entertainment was considered more important than art itself. Yeah. So he revolutionized opera, arguing that drama should be central to everything instead of musical set pieces to build entertainment on top of essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the orchestra can't simply be accompaniment. It's got to be a voice to serve the drama and dance can't simply just be pretty dance. It has to be an aspect that serves the drama. Everything serves the drama. Hence Gesamtkunstwerk. And Gesamtkunstwerk. (laughs) It's just fun to say. It is really fun to say. (laughs) Gesundheit. Um, (laughs) Almost all operas following this, following Wagner, use these ideals in constructing their operas. Everything serves the drama. Oh, yeah, for sure. And if you you branch out into other art forms as well, musical theater. And personally, I'm on board with this philosophy. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with it. I completely agree with it. I think that he expressed his opinions in a very 
egoistic kind of way. I think that that's also a side effect of being kind of, you know, it's so gross. Like it's so, so, so gross. And I'm still picking it apart in my brain, but like Wagner, who knows, maybe someday we'll say Kanye West, but I doubt it. But there there are some people in art or philosophy or any highly intellectual or creative field that are just maybe narcissistic, maybe they're legitimately a genius, maybe both, and they consider themselves prophetic and they consider their opinions to be extremely superior. And man, it's gross. It's Mm -hmm. real gross, but sometimes they're right on the money. And And you kind of hate to admit they're right. (laughs) You kind of hate to admit they're right, but yep, he, about, about this particular thing, I can't disagree with him. I think that it makes Mm -hmm. for better art. I think that when we fail to do it, I'm not as engaged personally. Yeah. You know, when when we fail to make sure that every element of the, the performance art or the visual art or the, whether, whether it's stage theater, musical theater, film, musical film, dance sculpture um, da- yeah like if, if everything isn't woven together in support of the same theme message idea it's just not as good like if it's cohesive it'll be as it'll be more impactful that's mm-hmm. just that's just the end of it like yeah you can't argue with it so two more things sorry okay. no it's okay sorry. this is this is weird it's hard for me to talk about this because I did way more research for this one than I normally do. And so I'm not surprised by anything you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's a little harder for me format wise. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's nice. Cause it seems like we have a lot of the same research and like the order that I put things in is not, is like you, you'll latch onto something and we'll go into a different order. So it seems a little scattered today and that's on, that's on both of us and just the nature of this episode. And we don't yeah, have thanks. like a plot. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for hanging with us. People who are listening. This one is it's heady for sure, but I think mm-hmm. it's really like the the reason we decided to do this episode this way and to next week do the opera is because Wagner is highly and hotly con- controversial in the mm-hmm. world of opera, and he's also immensely influential in the world of music, in the world of philosophy, in the world. I mean, he shaped political landscapes in a lot of ways. Man, you just can't, you just can't touch on his life and then move on to a plot of his opera. Like you got to have more context than that. Yeah. So, and we would be remiss to just listening. like whitewash it and and pretend like, oh, this is not an issue when we talk oh, about yeah. the opera. So, yeah, soups gross. But Absolutely. the two more things that I wanted to talk about that bring us back to his opera house. Um, he is the reason that there is an orchestra pit, and he is the reason that we turn lights off during performances. Really? So opera used to be a social event where the lights would be up, audience would wander around, people would have personal boxes where they would have a bunch of food and they'd have just like this jolly party during performances. And Wagner wanted people to sit down, shut up and take in the art. So in 1876, when they built the Bayreuth Festspielhaus, which was literally to stage the ring cycle, he put in an orchestra pit underneath the stage so that the music could be heard but not seen. So it's not taking away from the illusion (laughs) of drama that he's creating on stage, right? 
And he made sure that every audience member would have a good seat to view the drama. And he turned off the lights in the house. So people would have to be watched. People would have to be, would have to watch and be captivated by what was going on on stage and not wander around and talk to each other. Again, I cannot argue with his logic. (laughs) No, I can't see it any other way. I can't see. I mean, like it, it, it makes me think about like movies that I've seen that depict theater performances that happened before the time of Wagner. And I guess it never occurred to me, but like, if you watch Amadeus, if you watch um, the Libertine with, I think it was Johnny Depp. Oh yeah, it was. Oh, <laughs> I remember that one. Goodness. I was too young to appreciate the sexiness of the Libertine and I should probably watch it again now that I'm an adult. Um, but anyhow, yeah, the lights were up <laughs> and people were like, interacting and you know Shakespeare obviously it was done by daylight in a lot of situations but like mm-hmm. yeah it's uh it's a different setting and while I do appreciate you know the outdoor production where you do get to like visually interact with the audience we've also got instilled in us now as a culture of performance art consumers especially in the midwest oh my goodness especially in the midwest we have internalized the message of sit down and watch the performance and take it in and like you know if you exchange looks with people or if you you know cheer or giggle or not giggle but like there's appropriate reactions yeah. and then there are distracting reactions to mm-hmm. performance art. And so I think that now we can, like we made a rule, Wagner made a rule. And now if we break it, we break it with respect to the intent of the original rule. Mm-hmm. And I have Amen. to say, I appreciate it. For people who don't know anything about Wagner, they're probably listening and going, so he was just a narcissist with great ideas but just you wait. (laughs) So Wagner later in his life, not even in his early philosophy, philosophy expressed a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment. And it was especially in an article that he published an essay really called Das Judentum in der Musik or Jewishness in Music. It was originally published published in the Neue Zeitschrift für Musik in September of 1850, and Wagner originally published it under a pseudonym of K. Mm. Uh, Freigedank. Yeah, Freigedank. Free thought. Oh, very mm-hmm. clever. Very clever. And then he republished it in 1869 under his own name with vastly toned down language. Yeah, but also like very, um, not just toned down language, but also like an addendum that was like, this is why I said this, like super defensive, like, Mm -hmm. like he wasn't not, he wasn't decrying the things that he had said before. He was just glossing over them and making excuses for them. Kind of like a certain white haired, orange faced baby man that has been in power in a certain United States So three events of note preceded this essay's publication. One, Theodor Ulich, who was a disciple of Wagner's, published a series of essays attacking the music of Giacomo Meyerbeer, specifically the opera Le Prophète, as an example of a Hebraic art taste. 
Mm. And uh, Theodor Ulich was, um, he was a disciple of, of Wagner's and it kind of, I think it's so funny that they're <laughs> referred to as, is that you or is that like what people were, what people referred to them as? Cause that's very appropriate. Like, <laughs> no, he, he very much was, he didn't like Wagner at first. And then he became entirely devoted to Wagner. The second thing is that the opera Le Prophet by Meyerbeer is a critical success. People love it. And it's an especially touchy subject for Wagner because he hates it, even though he used to admire Meyerbeer. Yeah, wasn't he like a mentor of his? He was a financial supporter. And well, Wagner's I mean, so first was everybody opera, and their grandmother. Right, but Wagner's first opera never would have been produced had Meyerbeer not given him the capital to do so. So he's Wagner's just felt very touchy by this because he thinks the prophet is just terrible and and he feels like he needs to bring it down to bring himself up I guess mm. I don't know mm. the third thing is that Felix Mendelssohn dies in 1847 and Wagner disliked Mendelssohn because of his conservative compositions saying that it did nothing to bring German music into the future so we have him emboldened by Ulrich's articles riled up by Meyerbeer's success and given more freedom to express himself in opposition to Mendelssohn and I will note that both Meyerbeer and Mendelssohn were Jewish and up until this point Wagner has shown virtually no sign of anti-Jewish prejudice hmm did you know he was born in a part of Germany called the Jewish Quarter? Really? Yeah. He was born in an area that was predominantly inhabited by Jews. He lived, he was, he was born like very like lower middle class. Like his dad was a clerk. His mom was the daughter of, of a baker. Um, when his father died, like when he was six months old, his mom, like super speedy, moved in with a friend of his father's uh-huh. and they then, you know, had sex and got married and made babies and all that stuff. But it seemed it just smacks of like, I need a husband in order to survive. Like there's none of the oh, and then she became, you know, funded by her father that mm-hmm. we see with like composers who came from aristocratic backgrounds this is very much a (laughs) I want to say rags to riches story Mm -hmm. but the riches were still very like tenuous when they finally did come and he spent so much of his life spending money he didn't have and going from creditor to creditor to creditor to creditor to creditor to creditor and it's astounding to me Mm -hmm. the number of people who are willing to lend him money because he just had this incredible list of people that he owed money to Mm -hmm. and all of the from what I could glean in my reading all the people that gave him money were not people who had particularly large sums of money and I have a theory about that but we can get into it later yeah (laughs) I I will add that that could possibly be part of the reason that he doesn't like Meyerbeer and Mendelssohn. I mean, Mendelssohn we'll talk about in a little bit, but they were of means. I mean, Mendelssohn grew up in an affluent family. He had access to 
composing lessons, painting lessons. I actually think Mendelssohn's paintings are better than Mendelssohn's compositions. And you can quote me on that. Oh my goodness. I didn't know he painted nor that they were any good. Yep. And I mean, his <laughs> sister is a really good composer. was a really good composer. She's been dead for a while. Yeah. She's been, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so Very these stinky. people, these people of means have grown up and said, what with their music? And he yeah. had to struggle for everything that he had. And so, of course, I mean, there's some resentment there. Fuck, I can identify with that. I definitely can identify with that. And I think that that's really interesting when you look at the fact that he was kind of socialist for a while there um, and had anti-monarchical views. I mean, this all sounds very in line with a lot of stuff that we've got going on politically right now where, and I will just come out and say, like, eat the rich <laughs> like yeah. there are there are a small but mighty number of people in our society that have vastly more wealth than any one person could ever 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 hope to spend than any one family could ever 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 hope to spend and then there are swaths of people in poverty or near poverty who don't deserve to be there any more than anybody else that was born. And I just really feel very much like, you know, I don't know. I identify with that for sure. That's why I, I really strongly react to people who say cancel Wagner because of anti-Jewish sentiment, because do I totally disagree with a lot of these statements that Wagner made? Oh yeah. On a fundamental yeah, like level, no, 85 thank to you. 95% of everything he ever <laughs> right? said but outside of musical opinion. Did Wagner also think that ladies underwear was more comfortable? Yeah, me too. Like I'm totally with you there, buddy. So, Wait a minute. Hang on. What did he say about yep, what now? He Ladies definitely underwear? enjoyed wearing women's underwear because it was more comfortable. Hot. So just keep also... that in the back of your mind. <laughs> while I tell what, you did the, what did ladies underwear even look like back then, though? I'm sure it's just a Google away, my friend. Good point. Could it have been that much different than men's underwear? Could it really have been that much different? I feel like everybody just wore, like, loose-fitting, long legged boxer shorts and a tank top back then i just googled wagner ladies underwear <laughs> and what did you um, find wagner public genius with a private passion for bustles bows and bodices bustles bows and bodices is that just is that just an alliteration play or is that accurate i'm gonna hope it's accurate because it was published in the guardian <laughs> So I'm just going to Yeah, hope is about all we can do if it's been published in The Guardian. (laughs) We can strongly hope, but we can't necessarily take it as factual. Yeah. So you you read that later, but also just enjoy the vision of Wagner wearing women's underwear. So I tell you about this next part. The the bustles, honestly, are where I'm hung up the most. (laughs) Yeah, keep that in your head. You just want to have a little fake booty? Like, you just like... (laughs) What were the, what were those jeans or that underwear that um, like a five I don't know five or ten years ago it was like Haha, people make this and wear it but there was like that brand of undershorts that had like built in booty what it's like you a padded bra those? but for your yeah. ass yeah it's like a padded <laughs> bra but for your ass and like I would decry it but I have kind of a nice ass and so I can't really talk you know what if it makes you happy. 
You pay yeah, that ass. You know, yeah. Put, th- put that stuffing in your butt. Wear that bustle. Yeah, exactly. I don't got no qualms. Thank you. I feel significantly more prepared for what's going to come next. <laughs> oh, dear. Is it time for a refill? Um, not yet. We'll get there. We're going to need one after this. I read the 1850 version of the essay that Wagner published and it was translated to English by William Ashton Ellis. And I'm just going to kind of, I'm just You're gonna... talking about the, the essay Jew- Jewishness and music. Yep. I read it. I, I dove into that barrel of slime for you listeners. <laughs> I did it. I feel really gross now. But let me just let me just give you the gist of it. I won't dive too deeply into it. I will publish a link of the actual one that I that I read um, if anybody is interested, because this is something we were talking about before we started recording. I feel like so many people use this as an as, as an example to say Wagner wrote this. He's a bad person for writing this, but they haven't actually read it. It's just they use its existence alone as an argument against him, and so I really wanted to read it to have a to formulate a real opinion about it and which by the way in this day and age honorable as fuck round of applause for tina <laughs> and more wine for tina <gasps> <sighs> okay so wagner starts out by making it explicit that we can get over religious and political conflict with the jewish people because for all the disagreement things have never really reached a point of open conflict so it just kind of exists in this balance we all just know that jews are inferior and they are unaware that they're inferior and we can just get over it so it is their nature and personality that wagner explains people have an involuntary repellence to and that we can't blame ourselves if this involuntary repellence overpowers a conscious zeal to be a good person. We have to emancipate ourselves from the way they make us feel. They look odd. There's just something repelling about the way they look, but more disturbing is Which, hang on, he is not an attractive man. He's a really ugly person in women's underwear. commenting on anybody's appearance. He's got no business. Go on. Uh, but more disturbing than their looks is their speech, which is strange compared to other European languages and therefore makes their music strange. So there's this idea that music should be of the people and the people have a certain way of speaking. Like if my spe- if, if the speech patterns are a certain language are like, then that becomes the music of those people. These, the patterns of our speech are reflected in music. So the fact that Jewish people have a strange way of speaking, um, even when they speak European languages, they sound alien because they're speaking it as a learned tongue rather than a mother tongue. Right, and he because all it, language wasn't derived from that of the Babylonian empire and everything just, you know, didn't evolve in its own way based on regional dialects. Yeah. Well, and I just, I think it's weird that he says European languages in general, because what do we have in Europe? We have romantic languages like Italian and French and Spanish. We have Germanic languages like German. We have Slavic languages like Russian. Like there, there are so many different language bases here, but for some reason, the language of the Jewish people is strange and alien compared to everything else. Right. And he actually describes it as uh, creaking, squeaking, buzzing, snuffle, intolerably jumbled blabber. And of course, this is an English translation of a text written in 1850, but 
but he says that how the Jewish people talk is more offensive than what they actually talk about. And when we hear them speak, we are unconsciously offended. And what they say never has a chance to rise to loftier expressions of heartfelt passion or artistic enunciation to feeling. Oh my God. This and coming from yeah, this coming yeah. from a person, I'm sorry, that that is that flies in direct opposition, in my opinion, to the way he writes music. Like so much of what I read about Wagner and his viewpoints is basically just, it's it's just like an exercise in hypocrisy. Like his whole career was just flip-flopping from viewpoint to viewpoint and having all this cognitive dissonance that he couldn't recon- reconcile, but na- made no attempt to. So like, I'm sorry, if you're a person who's pushing the boundaries of music and making new things and trying all this new shit and feeling prophetic with all the change that you're making and all the newness that you're making, and then you come around and say, the way that they sound is too different for people to be able to appreciate what they're trying to say, then why the fuck would you expect anybody to appreciate what you are trying to say with your experimental art? That's actually putting what he said lightly because he didn't say that it sounds too different. He said that when we hear them, we can't help but be viscerally repelled by what they sound like. It's like, we're good people and we don't want to feel this way, but we can't help but feel that way. That's so unbelievable. It's so, it's so, it's such a fucking cop out. And like, you feel viscerally repelled. I felt viscerally repelled in modern art art museums. I felt oh God, viscerally yes. repelled in modern dance performances. That doesn't mean it's bad. It means I have something in me that I'm not prepared to explore. Or there is something in this performance that doesn't naturally resonate with me. But if I were to explore it, it might. Like that's such an unbelievably lazy way of thinking about art and society and culture and peoples and just everything that's just, yeah that's and to be fair I don't know if this is Wagner disliking music of Jewish people and then working backwards right or disliking Jewish people and working forwards you know or having I mean? or having resentment about the Jewish people that he knew being better funded Mm-hmm. And I didn't find anything about like his experience. Well, he lived in the Jewish quarter for like a hot second. He was literally six months old when he moved out of it. And so I don't know if anything in his early life contributed to any anti-Semitism. probably maybe even if, even if just like his mother had some kind of deeply espoused, like just unconscious bias. However, I will say I'm pretty sure that the man that she married after his father was at least of Jewish heritage. And there is there is everything pointing to the idea that Wagner suspected or thought or believed that the man his mother was married to was his biological father. Oh, interesting. You know, well, it's and just... It's- it's just he's he's not saying anything new here. He's saying things that are just popular belief throughout Europe. Absolutely. At this time. Absolutely. So he's, yeah, it's he's just never popular. expressed it so vehemently until this. He's an point. opportunist. He's yeah. an opportunist. Like he spends most of his life. So so if we look at his I'm sorry, I'm digressing again from what you were trying to talk about, but I think this is a good point to call it out at. If we look specifically at his 
spending and borrowing. He went throughout his life running out of money because he didn't start with much. I mean, like, to be honest, like I've got some pity for him, the guy and like, he wasn't good with money and I can relate to that too. But like he went throughout his life borrowing money that he couldn't pay back from people who didn't have a particularly large amount of money to begin with. Like we're talking about like middle-class people who he somehow convinced to give him money, even though he had this long list of people who he owed money to. Somehow these people continued to be convinced by him to give him money. So that's a red flag to me in terms of this person will say whatever they need to say to get what they feel is entitled to them. Mm -hmm. Then we see in his political life, and we didn't talk about this explicitly, but let me for a moment, he starts out as playing a minor role in the Dresden uprising, which was anti-monarchical. It was leftist. It was nationalist. It was socialist. It was enough to get him exiled. It was enough to get him exiled. Right. So like minor role, but like not super minor role in this uprising and the political planning that went on behind it. He believed that, like you said, there was the abuse of the lower classes Um, by people with money and that people had too much money. I mean, like I can resonate with a lot of this stuff, but, but later on in his life, after borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and fleeing from his creditors, all of a sudden he has caught the attention of the King of Bavaria, Ludwig. And the crazy one. Well, not just crazy. Ludwig was gay and Ludwig wanted Wagner and Wagner had no issue pretending to return the feelings of King Ludwig so that he could secure himself. I mean, first of all, he forgave all of his debts. Like he paid off all of his debts, which is not an insignificant amount of money to not an insignificant number of people. He bought him a villa. He kept him at court. He funded the Bayreuth, 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 the building of that music house, the funding of that festival. He also, also Wagner apparently had a considerable amount of influence on King Ludwig where he would King Ludwig would take Wagner's political ideas to his cabinet members and try to press them into action. And people were like, uh, excuse me, did Wagner tell you to tell us this? We're not fans. So basically what I'm trying to say here is that Wagner strikes me as a person with little regard for, for having a consistent moral compass. Mm-hmm. He's an opportunist. He's possibly an opportunist because he came from somewhat poverty. Mm-hmm. He's possibly an opportunist because the society in which he grew up gave him an easy scapegoat of Judaism and Jewish people to blame his poverty on. He's also manipulative and he's also 
very talented and very smart and very able to get what he wants out of a situation. It is a disastrous, dangerous combination that resulted in a lot of influential music. Mm-hmm. It is pr- yep. it is capital P problematic. I think this is the point at which we both need another drink. Yeah, man. And then we can come back and talk about Wagner and cancel culture. Talking and drinking, eviscerating the genre they love. Opera plot, happy hour, happy hour. Barger did not have a beard. He probably should. Well, he had one at certain points. He did. He he experimented with facial hair, but nothing is going to cover up that schnoz. Wow. Or that just the general, just the general like bone structure of his face is just very severe and unexpected. Yeah. (laughs) Salting. (laughs) I don't know. That's not kind. Uh, I, you know, people look different and I have nothing, I shouldn't, that's not, I, I take it back. It's mostly just that he was commenting so harshly on the physical appearance of others. Mm-hmm. That makes me want to tear him down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it and needs to be taken down in Natural Five. I firmly believe that if you stare at anybody long enough, they start to look really weird. Like you start yeah. to notice strange things. You yeah, don't like to the stare word at for that long. <laughs> Like the word fork. What? Haven't you ever had to like type something a whole bunch of times? <laughs> the word fork? No, can't. Or say like that the word happened. yes. Like if you have to put yes in every in a data cell in every column or something like that, or like you're filling out a form and you have to say yes, 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 no, yes. And after a while, the letters of the word start to like disassociate themselves with the word as a whole and then they reassemble themselves in your brain and you're like is that how you spell yes Mm -hmm. all right yeah i'm with you that can't be how you spell yes (laughs) yeah is that a real word (laughs) and then before before you know it you're having an existential crisis Because language is weird. Why are we talking about this? Because happy thoughts. Think happy okay. thoughts and yep. pixie dust yep. and stuff yep. like that. Yep, 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 okay. yep. <laughs> All right. Okay. So Wagner and cancel culture, because there seem to be two camps, which is program Wagner and whitewash everything problematic about him or cancel Wagner because the bad outweighs the good or the bad is just bad. So cancel. Yep. And I, and I don't think like the good that Wagner did and the bad that Wagner did necessarily have to be compared to each other. You know what I mean? They can be taken separately of each other. If you made a Venn diagram of the positive contributions that he made to the world and the negative contributions that he made to the world, there's a very small overlap from what I can tell from, from the research that I've done. 
which is considerably more than the research that I normally do. So, you know, like still take it with a grain of salt, but take it with a larger grain of salt than you normally do. Um, or a smaller one. I'm not sure how that metaphor shakes out. He made significant impacts to music as a genre, as a world of thought and sensation and art consumption that simply don't seem to have any distinctly problematic themes or bearance on the art form, on humanity, on society. It's just, this is how he felt like art should be done. Did he make some art decisions based on anti-Semitism or at least white supremacy or like German supremacy or male supremacy? Yeah, for sure he did. Absolutely. But very small compared to the impact of the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And then another large circle to the right is the negative that's associated with him based on his anti-Semitic writings and his you know, cultural misogyny and his narcissism and his flip-floppiness. That it's, it's apples and oranges in some ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we will, I mean, we, we've gotten a lot of comments just this week via social mm-hmm. media about, mm-hmm. just about like, well, we'll separate the man from the art. Like that's, that's one of the big arguments that I see, like how can a chord be anti-Semitic? How can a melody be anti-Semitic, right? We just right. separate him from the art and enjoy the art. And I think that when the art and the artist who created it reflect well upon one another, we have no problem associating them. Right. And the conversation of separating the art from the artist is never brought into play in that situation. Well, why would it need to be? Exactly. Exactly. But then when the art we love is at odds with the artist who created it, mm-hmm. some would conveniently try to separate them and maybe like mm-hmm. lessen their own cognitive dissonance they might experience by enjoying that art. And I don't think we can do that because all art is in some way a reflection of the artist and we can't rightly claim that either the art or the artist exist within a vacuum. Right. But yeah, I, totally. I think that it is rare that a single piece of art is ever a complete reflection of the artist as a whole. Like or the even entire- a body of work, to be honest. Like even yeah. a body of work, like as, I can't, I don't, I don't purport to be an artist, but like we, we, we tend to look at composers and actors and painters and whomever, whatever art form is their form. We tend to look at them as vehicles, as, as the vacuum Mm -hmm. we have a tendency also I think you called this out in another episode we have a tendency to look at people's art in like periods like this is their classical period and then this is their period their primitive period and this is when they broke out and did their Russian period and whatever these are humans with evolving philosophies and life experiences and emotions and their art is output from their brains and their brains are meatballs with electricity. And so there's a high level of variability there. There's a high level of fallibility there. And what becomes positively accepted, I mean, man, sometimes it comes down to like what resonates with the general public. Sometimes it comes down to luck. If you want to call genius, luck or luck genius I mean 
there's just a lot of variability there that it's difficult to. I think the entire essence of a person, like you said, with all of that variability, with all of that, I mean, tendency to evolve and grow over time. And like the opinions that I had 10 years ago are not the opinions that I have Mm -hmm. now, right? Mm -hmm. To, Mm -hmm. To distill that into a single piece of art is not a requirement that we should put on art to hold all of that meaning at once. Like art is very specific, focused ideas, maybe. Like maybe there are several, but they are they are done in a very specific focused way, as in like, I need to say this one thing about this one thing, therefore this is the way my art goes. And it's not everything that I think about everything. Or if it's everything you think about everything, it's everything that I think about everything right now. Whether yeah. that right now period is this week or this month or this year or this period of five years or 10 years, very rarely is it that this viewpoint that's expressed in this work of art is static over the course of a human life. And maybe an artist isn't using art to express the viewpoints they feel deeply about. Maybe they are using it to explore a viewpoint they feel ambivalent about, or maybe they're using it to explore a viewpoint that they disagree with. Mm -hmm. And of course, their their disagreement with it probably taints it to a certain extent. And also, can I, can I also jump off of that? Because like some of this is, a lot of this makes me think about modern artists that we lump into, lump, that are, that are part of the discussion around cancel culture. Michael Jackson, Bing Crosby, John Lennon, J.K. Rowling. There's a lot of prolific artists, impactful artists who something comes out later about them and people are like oh god oopsie doopsie even closer to home placido domingo and yeah yeah absolutely and so you were listing off like like maybe the artist is creating something they're ambivalent about they want to explore it and maybe the artist is creating something that they feel negatively about and they want to explore it i would argue also that like maybe the artist is just trying to Oh they're yeah. Doing, and they're doing what they think is going to be consumable. Yeah. And totally. God, I mean, Bing Crosby, John Lennon, JK Rowling, Michael Jackson at points in their, in their careers on varying degrees, highly principled artists, artists, John Lennon, particularly, does that mean that they never produced anything that ended up being influential? That was maybe just kind of whatever like good, like fun art, entertainment art. And was Wagner was highly principled about entertainment not being the sole purpose of art, except when it didn't behoove him. Mm-hmm. He was, judging by what I see in his patterns, that guy had principles until they didn't serve him. You can see this in two different ways. Like, like you called out a minute ago, you can see this as it's beautiful art, it's impactful art, we can't ignore this art. We need to keep it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as somebody called out in the comments of one of our social posts, someone felt very strongly that if we were to cut Wagner, if we were to cut Wagner from the canon and just stop producing it, that it would be a death knell for opera. I have separate opinions about that that I want to come back to. On the other side of it, you've got If we do not listen to the marginalized groups that are harmed by Wagner, 
we are doing a deep, deep disservice to those groups. And that will be the death knell of opera. To say that what, what I feel like you're saying is to argue for the middle ground, is to argue for nuance, is to argue for taking everything case by case. I I will agree with the caveat that there is a basic line of human decency that we cannot cross. Mm-hmm. And if the middle ground is below that basic line of human decency, then the middle ground sucks. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, and, and again, yes, no, yeah, absolutely. But that's still nuance. Like that, yeah. that line moves depending on what are we talking about? You know, humans were not <laughs> intellectually designed to exist in a macro culture, we're just, we just really struggle with reconciling our viewpoints to vast, diverse culture situations. And one of the ways we see that is racism. Mm -hmm. Another of the ways that we see that is moral absolutism, where we say this person committed this crime and therefore we can't regard them as the same level of human as everybody else. That t- that takes a couple different forms. That takes the cancel them form and it takes the excuse them because of all the things that they did or because of all the things that they will be form. Mm-hmm. Let's just go back to canceling Wagner because he had the opinions that Jewish composers lacked depth to compose anything worthy to add to the canon is a fixed ideal. Yeah. And whitewashing it and saying we need Wagner and forgive everything he's done that's bad because everything that he's done that's good cancels it out and we would die without him is also a fixed ideal and it just it just rejects nuance yeah and you know like okay so I don't agree with that cancel culture but in the in the light of like Placido Domingo and James Levine Should they be canceled? I mean, maybe we shouldn't reject that they contributed positively to musical output, but also I don't think that they should ever be given a platform to take advantage of others ever again. Right. Like I'm not going to reject that Placido was a good singer, but I also simultaneously acknowledge the fact that he used his position of power to take advantage of people beneath him. Well, I think the question of cancel culture is like, what do you do with that information next? Because like, to, to, and what does it mean to cancel somebody, quote, quote, quote? What does it mean to cancel somebody? It depends on, you know, what, are they dead? Are they still literally like profiting? Are, there, are their descendants profiting heavily from their work? Is it something we can opt out of? Is it something mm-hmm. that has irrevocably changed a genre? And so if you were to cancel, for example, Wagner... Would you then have to cancel Strauss? Would you who who arguably did some kind of low-key badass things in favor of the Jews? Mm-hmm. Would you then have to cancel Mahler? What does it mean to cancel somebody? Is mm-hmm. the big question. And I think that again, like humans are, we struggle to step outside of seeing things in black and white. We just do. You know, we just do. And like that's that, that is a mechanical failing. <laughs> of our species and that's okay like that's that's just where we're at we just have to like start from where we're at and say this brings up something in me that makes me want to feel one way or the other 
Mm-hmm. But what do I know about it? And that, you know, that kind of makes me think of like how you, you were texting me earlier today. Like I have such strong feelings about this and I have, I, I really feel this way about, you know, rejecting nuance is lazy and you still feel that way. But before we started recording the episode, after you had texted me, you read Wagner's essay, Jewishness in Music, and it made you feel some shit. You didn't, you told me you did not expect to feel as icky as you did. And so while you still don't land yourself in the camp of we should full stop cancel Wagner, because what does that even look like? You have now read the thing. You have done your personal research. You with your empathetic mind that I know that you have, have looked at this more critically and more holistically and said, wow, yeah, I could see how producing Wagner could be damaging to some communities. Now, what power do you have? You have the power in your own capacity. Your own capacity is that of a performer, is that of a teacher of music, is that of a podcaster, is that of a programmer of concerts. If I'm leaving anything out, feel free to chime in. You can choose to program or not program. You can choose to accept roles or not accept roles. We also know that we would never fault any singer or actor for from accepting a role. And it has to land with you. And people can much more easily cancel on a personal level out of conviction and more honorably do so mm-hmm. on a personal level yeah. than insisting that the entire culture do it. And it actually kind of, it's funny. It makes me think of um, one of the more resonant and I, I'm I'm pretty firmly agnostic, <laughs> which is an oxymoron. It's so funny because I have a story that goes <laughs> along with this, but anyway. Okay, hang on to it. <laughs> I'm pretty firmly agnostic, which is an oxymoron, but one of the Bible stories that has always struck a chord with me that never stopped to uh, is one in which the lesson is, if you're going to pray, do it in private where nobody can see you. And that's not because you should hide it. It's because this is not about what you look like to other people. This is not about virtue signaling. This is not about making a a point or taking a stand, although there is honor in those things. At some point, it is just as honorable, if not more, to have the conversations in private, have the conversations on social media, do so respectfully, especially if you're someone who is a would-be ally and not a member of the marginalized group. It may not advance your cause further to rail against the thing that you object to as much as it does to withdraw from it or abstain from it and instead channel that energy into something that you do not object to. I can give you a personal anecdote as a performer of art about, well, basically exactly what you're talking about. I always think of the Mozart Requiem in this capacity because I love singing as the alto soloist in the Mozart Requiem. And if I'm asked to sing it, I will always, always say yes. I love that piece so much. And I am an atheist and I will never say no to singing a mass with a religious text. And it's not because I want the paycheck for singing it. I just love it. I love that piece so much. And in fact, I've agreed to sing it for free in the past because I just love it so much. So do I believe, (laughs) do I believe in the religious meaning of this text? No. 
do I believe that the emotions I experience and the beauty that I find in this piece are valid? Of course. And the beauty I find doesn't have to have religious meaning attached to it because that's not who I am, but that mm-hmm. doesn't preclude me from finding that beauty either. And the, you know, they're not how mutually you, exclusive. Yeah. How do you reconcile the negative impact? So to, to try and like bounce off of this, like the idea of cancel culture and where it stems from, how do you reconcile the negative impacts, the misogynist impacts, mm-hmm. the classist impacts of Catholicism yeah. for which this work was composed mm-hmm. with the proliferation yeah. Yeah. So, of that particular piece, just because I would it's say beautiful. That, yeah. I mean, there, there are other singers outside of the Christian church who would feel uncomfortable singing this piece. In fact, I have a dear friend who is gay and feels very uncomfortable singing religious text because he feels like religion is something that has rejected him. Mm-hmm. But so much of our music centers around religion, especially sure. in college. If you go to college and like oh a Lutheran choral tradition, yeah. everything is freaking religious. Yeah. And you want to sing in choir and enjoy yourself, but you feel so uncomfortable because you're being forced to perform at a high level these these religious texts of a religion that has rejected you. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Those feelings are so valid. So valid. And you should be able to recuse yourself from that. You should be able yeah. to take yourself out of that situation that yeah. makes you feel uncomfortable. And just because I find a piece of myself that reverberates deeply with Mozart Requiem doesn't mean that everybody will or that everybody should be coerced to try. And that's how I feel about Wagner. Like do his pieces as they stand do harm? I don't necessarily think so. Did he have personal beliefs that I disagree with? Hell fucking yes. And are the emotions that I experience and the beauty that I find in his music valid? Of course. Is that beauty simultaneously tainted by the horrible words that he's published? Yes. All of these things are true simultaneously. I want to tell you about Cadillacs. Cadillacs? Cadillacs, as in the car. Oh, Cadillacs. (laughs) Cattle axe, cows. Cattle axe? Axes. No, oh cattle axe. Oh my God. I'm, so the secret here is that Amanda's actually a robot. <laughs> I'm Siri. I can't hear you when you talk and I don't know how to spell things. So cattle were and are like luxury cars, right? And they came on the scene at the turn of the 20th century and they have been a status symbol ever since. Mm-hmm. And they were not allowed to be sold to people of color. Because Cadillac thought people of color didn't fit the prestige buyer profile they wanted driving their cars. Right. And people of color who had the means wanted to own Cadillacs because they deserve to have nice cars too. So to get their Cadillacs, they would buy them secondhand from rich white people who were selling them. And there were even people who would send a white buyer to a dealership on their behalf to buy the car. Mm -hmm. And honestly, they could have canceled the brand Cadillac and they would have been so warranted and doing so like Mm -hmm. I would not have blamed them at all because the company's discriminatory practices suck and instead they embraced it as a status symbol and it was actually a really good thing for Cadillac that they embraced it because Cadillac almost went under during the great depression like GM was literally going to close the Cadillac division but someone suggested they started marketing their cars to people of color and it literally saved Cadillac from the, the Great Depression. It's the only reason we have it. And it makes me think about all of these 
art slash artist conflicts in a new light because what if Wagner's music was boycotted by everybody except those who align completely with his ideals? And what if Harry Potter were only for anti-trans readers? That means Wagner and J.K. Rowling and the others that have these discriminatory ideals are proven right, that the people outside of their quote-unquote ideal human has no place enjoying their work. How so? Say more about that, that they're proven right. Say more about that. They're proven right because- because Wagner thinks that Jewish people lack the emotional depth mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to transcend to a point of appreciation of his music. Oh, and so by that logic, then if people who identify as Jewish or of Jewish heritage or like who sympathize with Jewish people reject Wagner, then they are proving him right by saying that we mm-hmm. can't access the emotional level that you have. Okay, so... So what I'm saying is, can listening to Wagner, can reading J.K. Rowling, can buying a Cadillac be an act of protest saying you rejected me, but I refuse to be rejected? Sure. And of course, I don't agree with giving them your dollars. So if you buy like a Harry Potter book, buy it from your favorite local used bookstore. Email me if you need suggestions. Borrow them from me. Right? (laughs) Like just don't rip the pages. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And if you choose to enjoy Wagner... Do it via a company that addresses and ideologically rejects anti-Semitism. And also, if you hate this advice, that's valid too, because I'm not here to tell anybody that the way that I feel is more valid than the way they feel. Like, If your experience does not align with this, by all means, it is your experience to have. Yeah, for sure. I think we would serve ourselves by just giving a TLDR for this episode. (laughs) And I would say that Wagner did some great things. Mm-hmm. Wagner said some horrible things that made me feel ickier than I expected them to. And I didn't even scratch the surface for you, friends. We could spend, we could honestly spend three episodes just like detailing his life and the flip-flopping that he did and the horrible things that he said and mm-hmm. the great things that he did. And it's just, I mean, the man yep. was... <laughs> he packed a lot in. <laughs> oh, yes, he absolutely did. And there are people who are all over the map in regards to their feelings about Wagner and everybody's individual feelings and whether or not they choose to enjoy Wagner. They're all completely valid. Mm-hmm. And we can't tell other people how to feel and whether or not they should enjoy Wagner. No. And I don't think that we have solved the world's problems in this episode. Mm, super but not. we've poked a lot of them. Sure and did. now you can't say that we didn't. <laughs> poke, poke, pokety poke. Please and listen I, to us again in the future. Right. And I and I just think that this opens us up to talk about Wagner in the future, not in a way where we ignore these things, but in a way where we have thoroughly addressed them in a sense outside I mean. of the opera. And the opera can kind of be its own thing and not become consumed in the rabbit holes that we went down today so many there's so much you guys like i've got literally i have literally three pages of notes and i maybe got through one so all this is to say thank you all for listening thank you so much and if you want to tell us what you think about wagner and cancel culture we would love to hear it some of you have shared already but for those of you who haven't please shoot us an email at operapodhappyhour at gmail.com 
Yeah. And if you want to know more about the show, you can visit our Facebook page or check out our website at operaplothappyhour.com. Or our Instagram. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And while you're there, please rate and review us, including this episode, even if it bugged you, because it helps other people find the show. And also because we really want to know your feedback. So this is normally the point where I open up my big old book and figure out who next week's composer is, but spoiler, it's Wagner. It's Wagner. We're going to try to do a Wagner opera next week because now we've given you the context of it and we'll hopefully have a really cool uh, announcement to tie into that as well. Hope, 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 hope. Hashtag hope. Oh, I have to give you a quote. Uh, I think uh, Wagner would approve of this quote actually uh, because of Gizam. Gesamtkunstwerk. Gesamtkunstwerk. The idea is that all of us need to, you know, pull all of the different artistry aspects together to make a cohesive work of art, whether it's acting or singing or music or set design or, or costume design. It all needs to tell the same in service of the same story. So, you know, we have Kelly O'Hara and she is a Broadway actress. And she said, I loved to sing and I loved to act. And I didn't want to continue opera because I wanted to act. Shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) I feel personally attacked. (laughs) (laughs) I feel personally validated. (laughs) 